Produced by PI Media. Hi everyone, I'm Ran Levy. Welcome back to the Wix Engineering Podcast. To begin today's podcast, allow me to ask, how have you been enjoying working remotely? Has it been boring and hard to focus? Some of you may be glad to have a little privacy. Maybe it's a relief not to have to listen to your boss ramble on every day about this and that. Well, in today's episode, we're going to substitute a little of that for you. We've gathered some of the leading executives in the technology sector in Israel for a panel discussion on all things related to software, business, and COVID-19. With me are Yuval Kesten, Director of Engineering at Facebook, Karin Moskovich, VP of R&D at Riskified, Ohad Yassin, General Manager of Azure AI at Microsoft, Guy Berkovich, Chief Operation Officer at Waze, and Sivan Brezniak, Viewer Company Manager at Wix. Together, our conversation will focus on three main topics. First, the effects of working from home on the company and its engineering activities. Second, freedom versus standardization. How to allow developers the freedom to choose any technology they want while sticking to the company's standards. And lastly, maintaining dev velocity and the quality of products in a growing company. One last thing, as this was an online panel, there are times in which the sound quality of the recordings was less than stellar due to the usual network lags and other annoyances I'm sure you're all familiar with by now. Hopefully they should not interfere with your listening experience. So without further ado, let's get started. Have you ever wanted to live inside a movie? Like when you were a kid, maybe you imagined yourself on a journey with Robin Hood or fighting against the dark side in Star Wars. Well, congratulations. We're all living in a movie right now. 2020 started off pretty normal. We were all going to work every day, hanging out with our friends and basically living our ordinary lives. Nothing to see here. But, as it is with any good movie, something was bubbling under the surface. A novel virus had begun to spread in China. Beijing has confirmed the number of people who have died from a new type of respiratory virus in China has now passed 40. Almost 30. And now to the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. The number of cases continues to grow. Beijing's authorities have cancelled New Year celebrations this weekend as a precaution as fears about the spread of a deadly new virus grow. See Please follow instructions during this time. Your cooperation is integral to protecting the health of... While we all went about our daily lives, a pandemic began to form. First one person, then two, then 12, then 1,200, then 12 million. We, as the protagonists of this story, have been faced with a major adversary. Our lives have been upended. So in order to overcome this adversity, we must grow and change. Otherwise, the movie will be flat. The first thing we all did was move online. Work, school, socializing, everything we once did outside now had to be replicated 
on screens. Software companies were relatively lucky in this regard. As the companies which designed these solutions, we were already using online communications, workspaces, video chat, and other neat features that turned into absolute staples of the pandemic. But as our guests are quick to say, the pandemic isn't easy for everyone. Even the highest tech, most forward-thinking companies are still struggling and having to make constant adjustments in order to stay afloat. Sivan from Wix, your experience during the early stages of the pandemic, I think it was a bit different, right? And by the way, the other panelists, feel free to raise your hand if you have any, anything to add in that regard. Sivan, go ahead. Just before we start, we were instructed to go work from home. We actually um, started execution of a really, really big project that's cross-company. And everybody was working together and we were doing onboarding sessions and we were working on dividing the project into different uh, tracks and tasks. And there were actually a very limited amount of people, about six people that initiated everything and that POC'd this. And then we needed to onboard 100 people onto this project. And all of this happened at the same time that, that the COVID um, pandemic broke out. And then, and then we needed to start working from home. And all of these people are, some of them are in Israel, in Tel Aviv, some of them aren't in Tel Aviv, are at different Wix offices, and some of them are abroad, like in Kiev and Yepopotov. And, and, and we needed to onboard all of these people while everybody was working from home, and this is a new technology, a new architecture for the system, and we need to teach everybody what to do. And we don't even have all of the answers about how to do everything ourselves. And working from home is something that even though We do enable people to work from home. We still expect people to come to the office at least three times a week as working together, talking, brainstorming, teamwork is, is part of our core of the company and the core of my group. And, and it was something that was just taken away from us. And we, we really didn't know how to deal with it at that point. So we really had to recap very quickly and decide how we're going to take to, to do this And while we're still onboarding people and we were very limited on time and we need to start executing this entire project and like everything that we know how to do, like working together and talking and brainstorming and helping people. And we actually sit very, very closely, everyone together and like walking between people and, and just like asking questions out loud in the room. And then like we have teams and team leaders and all that, that, that we need to, to teach them how to work in this new technology and under this new architecture and everything while we're, we just started to work from home, which was something that we really did not know how to do very well. So Guy from Waze, let me turn to you because speaking earlier to you, uh, you, you mentioned that your opinion of the feasibility of re- working remotely in a company for the long term kind of changed because of your experience uh, during the pandemic, right? Yeah, no one is going to convince me that it is, uh, this pandemic is so great and now we can all work from home. No, and I, as I told you, it's, I feel sometimes that it's not working from home, it's living at work. And we need to remember that each and every person that we manage and each and every person from our organization experience it differently. So we need to have a lot of patience. As I see it in the future, We are going to have a mix of working from home and working from the office, but 
as we go along, different teams will have some kind of a routine or a process. Let's, have, let's all have one day walking from home or two days walking from home or things like that, because then the team can actually work together and we're going to leave the specific tasks to that day. If we are going to do it in the right mixture, this is going to be very good. And the second thing is about meetups. If I'm looking at the meetups that we are doing in, in, in Waze, every month we have a different community meetup somewhere in the world. And since COVID started, we are doing it virtually. And we are learning a lot because suddenly we can touch many, many more people. If in a real event we are inviting only between, I don't know, 70 to 100 people from the community, suddenly we have hundreds of people coming to the virtual communities. But they are still waiting for this meetup, the physical meetup. So I just spoke the other day with our community manager. We are going to have a mix next year, or once the COVID is off, and we're going to have both virtual and non-virtual. Just to, to share one thing, I look at the survey that we did in Google, and different countries have different perspective of working from home. So Israel, for example, more than, uh, more than uh, 60%, is actually higher than that, wants to work only from the office. So, and if I'm comparing it to Europe, suddenly this drops to about 50% that, works, that wants to work only from the office. But if I look at the survey and most of the people, more, more than 75% want some, some kind of a mixture, I didn't see high percentage that wants to work only from home. That's also my experience. So Karin, I'll pass the question to you. Uh, I have a question for you about the cultural aspect of, of this epidemic. But first, what is your opinion of the feasibility of working from home in the long run after the, the COVID pandemic is over? So I think I kind of agree with my colleagues here because like everyone, we, we uh, didn't know uh, if this so-called experiment would be as smooth as it, as it actually was in terms of ability to perform everyday tasks and ability to be as productive as before. Um, and it turned out it's definitely possible and our team is still able to produce excellent results while maintaining high quality and stability of our products. So we can say it's feasible, but uh, really when considering other aspects, um, I definitely think that for some companies for the long term, working completely remote five days a week is not necessarily the best thing to do. And especially in R&D work, which is very collaborative and where the team is the most important uh, work unit. And a big part of our culture at Riskified is simply working together and being together, having fun together. Um, it's a big part of what makes works, uh, work enjoyable. Um, You're actually touching upon my, my follow-up question, which is the relationship between the culture of the, of the organization. We all know that different organizations have different cultures and how an organization is adapt, can adapt to work from home. You think that different cultures uh, are not equal in that sense? I do, because when I look at Riskify, then I can definitely see some factors in our culture that really helped us adapt quickly to this situation. And I think that if you don't have this factor in your organizations, then you would probably have uh, much more difficulties. And the first factor, I think, is collaboration. And even more important factor, I think, in your culture is uh, empowerment and autonomy. 
because as a rule, we trust our employees to do excellent work without management having to constantly supervise. So when management isn't physically present in the immediate surroundings, we know we can still trust our employees to do excellent work remotely. Our team leaders are accountable for their teams anyway. That's not changing when we work from afar. Um, and we also trust them to make all the required adjustments since they had autonomy to make adjustments in order to improve their team's work before when we were in the office. So they still have this power uh, right now. Yuval, over to you. Yuval from, from Facebook. Part of management, I mean, the skill of a management is, is rallying a team around some, some sort of a common vision or a common goal. When everybody is not in the office, how do you as a manager manage to create such you know, camaraderie, people working together towards something common? I think I'm still learning and adapting. And also, you know, the situation changes every month because we hire new people. Uh, you know, the kids are at preschool, the kids are at home. So uh, it's, it's really changing. You know, the, the mitigations that we are trying to have is a lot of communication, but also precise communication. So you don't want to waste people's time because there is a sense where, uh, you know, Everybody, you need to be more respectful of people's time and don't just do you know, uh, redundant meetings just to convey something that you would have said to people in the, in the kitchen or in the corridor uh, if you were at the office. Uh, but at the same time, you, you lose a lot of your abilities as a manager, especially the, the interpersonal abilities. So anyway, it's a combination of writing more than you usually do. And, and investing more in what you write so it will be more precise and, and people understand it. Uh, it's about doing some random one-on-ones across your team. So for example, you know you, you don't just with your direct reports, but also maybe with your skip levels and, and, and just like a bunch of people, new people, tenured people, senior people, junior people uh, uh, from across the team. And, to find ways to get some of them to be champions of the message that you want to convey to, convey to the team. Like, you know, this big new priority or even, you know, the, the work-life balance uh, uh, message, don't burn yourself. We're here for the long run. If you, I'll just be the one sharing it again and again, you know, people will get the banner blindness and they will stop listening to me. But if I will find uh, champions of this message from across the team, I think that will be very, at least I found it to be very effective. So my calendar is, is full of uh, meetings that might look arbitrary or even random to, to someone from the, from the outside, but it's part of my mitigation. So if I understand correctly, the one-on-one aspect of communication you think has a deep impact on, on tying people to a common goal, right? Yes, and I think to be more precise, uh, just the tactic of you saying the same thing again and again is not effective enough. It's important, but it's not effective enough. You also need to find champions. And my own way to find these champions that will help me convey this message from across the team, you know, bottom up, not just me saying to, to my team, is through one-on-ones with you know, uh, individual contributors uh, across my team's light interfaces, uh, uh, so across this team. Um, and then I find the one, two, three, five people that are very passionate about, you know, this message that I'm trying to convey, and I'm asking them to help me in, in delivering this message to the rest of the team, and they find their own ways in team meetings, in their one-on-ones, et cetera. Okay, so 
my final question for the topic. Yes, Guy, you raised your hand. You have something to say. I personally learned during this uh, working from home, one thing we did, for example, in Waze, uh, as I can say now, it was completely planned. We moved to work with uh, squads. And this is small groups that have developers from all over the teams that are working towards a common goal. And according to specific OKRs, as we call it in Google, or KPIs, as we call it in the rest of the world. And this is really scaling out the organization to continue what uh, you just said, uh, because now you can actually have few teams and few leaders from different teams that are leading the organization in parallel. Of course, you need to have some architecture that support it, but over communicating is great. And second thing I wanted to add is I started my own feedback box even before the COVID, which anyone in the organization can actually write to me even anonymously. And since the COVID started, I am getting a lot of letters in my anonymous uh, uh, feedback, feedback box, and I actually recommend everyone to do that. What kind of messages did you get in your inbox? People who are finding it very difficult to work, and I didn't know that we had issues in this, in this team or that team. And second, there, there were lots of uh, people asking for specific new processes to be uh, built, whether it's different code reviews that should be done or different, uh, 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 different risks that we can take with the production. You know, in ways during this COVID, we have much less uh, uh, traffic in few, uh, in, in, for a few months. So we could actually take bigger risks and put into production what we, in the past, took a year to put into production. Suddenly, we could take higher risks. And these all ideas came from developers inside the organization. I don't know why, but most of them chose to do it anonymously, which means that they will not speak up during a meeting or a forum or things like that. Actually, it raises a question, I mean, for all of our panelists, feel free to raise your hand and answer it. What did your organization do uh, that really you think helped in terms of giving tools to, to the employees or providing them, as, as Guy said, with uh, special means of communications? Anything that you think that really made an impact in terms of helping employees work remotely more efficiently? I, I think one of the things that we started doing a lot more uh, over the last six months is recording meetings. Uh, one of the things that uh, is, is problematic when the team is dispersed and, and working uh, across the globe, uh, each of the persons in, on a different personal timeline due to their own work-life balance situation and the choices that they make in order to, uh, you know, how they um, spend and, and, and share their time, um, it's basically a challenge to make sure that everyone, you know, to find a time which is suitable for all. Um, and when you record a meeting, you uh, basically allow people to offline attend that meeting. And as a manager, as a lead, you need to accommodate and, and understand the fact that, you know, some things will progress slower, uh, perhaps, and, than uh, they could have been uh, without this. But 
still overall, um, the fact that we are able to do that on a consistent manner allows, uh, you know, and especially us as a global company where, you know, at any point in time, any day of the week, there's someone working on something which is relevant for your uh, line of business and for your uh, product and for your, uh, I don't know what, next big event or whatever. It's still, you know, uh, it's it's actually a much better practice than what we had before where if I missed that meeting, then, you know, I lost my chance of making my voice heard and my opinion matter. Uh, and in, in that sense, I think it's nice for everyone to know that, you know, they can uh, balance things out and still be able to contribute. Actually, recording recording meetings seems such a I mean, simple idea. I, I'm amazed that I never, it never crossed my mind. Uh, to do that in, in that sense. Uh, by the way, Guy, you mentioned in, in, in our conversation earlier that you have a concept in ways called virtual flights. What's that? So, you know, Waze is a global company, and I guess the other one here also represents global teams, and our engineering group is located both in Tel Aviv and in uh, New York. And sadly, when uh, COVID started, All the visits, the face-to-face visits are gone. And what, uh, what I found out is that managers from the engineering groups from both sides of the ocean needs to see each other. Now, if your office hours are not the same as the time zone, let's say, of New York, people don't feel comfortable to, you know, to set something with you at... Uh, Uh, 11 o'clock at, at night Israel time so what what we propose is a virtual flight I'm telling everybody at my home I'm flying next week to be with my team in New York and next week I should walk or starting noon time but staying awake until two o'clock in the morning and actually I did it for a week and it was very efficient And then I started to work from eight o'clock to two o'clock. This is not so efficient. So what we need to make sure is that the virtual flights stay the same and it goes both ways. And I think it's a great idea. Interesting idea. And maybe less jet lag as well, I hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do creativity, ingenuity and innovation require freedom? Does more freedom automatically translate to greater innovation? For years, centuries even, philosophers, economists and politicians have debated the point. So maybe it's useful to look to how major companies have handled the problem and see how it's worked out for them. The most famous example of freedom in the tech industry is probably Google's 20% project. At Google, employees already have a ton of luxuries available to them, including cafes, lounge areas, ping-pong, plenty of free amenities, and other ways to waste your time not coding. And yet, they're still told to spend 20% of their on-the-clock paid work hours on personal projects. Theoretically, 20% fewer dedicated work hours should translate to a 20% drop in productivity. But if you qualify to work at Google, you're probably already the kind of person who uses the free time wisely. 
So instead of a drop in productivity, the company has instead seen an increase in innovation and creativity as a result of this program. As just a few examples, Google News, AdSense, and even Gmail all began as 20% projects. In the following section of our panel discussion, I asked what other software business leaders think of freedoms like these. So our second topic of discussion today is the freedom for developers to choose the technology they wish to work with versus sticking to the company's standards and techniques. And naturally, each choice has its own pros and cons. So Karin, I'll turn to you first with this question. Uh, from your experience, how does the amount of freedom that developers have affect the innovation in an in organization? Uh, more freedom uh, is, in essence, more innovation? Well, generally, yeah, I, I, I definitely believe so. I think that in some situations, more freedom is not only more innovation, but more of a mess and more of a bottleneck. So obviously, it needs to be balanced. Uh, but yeah, um, I can definitely say that our stack and architecture were mainly enriched in a bottom-up way. Okay, when engineers or teams of engineers felt free to come up with new technologies that were the best fit for what they needed to develop. Um, and this is how we've added Node.js to our stack and Spark and gRPC, and these are just a few examples. And, you know, in Riskified, we are a, a growing organization. Uh, it's really important for me, uh, while the organization grows, uh, to be able to grow it also technologically, but I can't supervise uh, 100 people uh, one by one, and neither can the team leaders. So I think it's really important when you need to grow uh, to create a culture where engineers feel free to suggest solutions and you don't have to go through a lot of channels in order to, to get them approved. What is your criteria to rejecting such an, uh, an offer or a request from an engineer? I mean, are there any... Uh, I mean, red lines that you say, no, we can't try this and this technology because something. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it, it needs to be a combination of um, it, we need to get um, a really strong value from this new technology that is applicable to um, a, a wide number, a big number of teams. Um, it should be a good enough of a reason in order for us to start supporting this infrastructure with our infrastructure team because our infrastructure team provide uh, tools um, and uh, libraries for uh, widely used uh, technologies and uh, languages. So for us to uh, want them to make that effort, it needs to be something that adds additional value to what we already have and can be widely used by everyone. Uh, Ohad from Microsoft, uh, you had a, an interesting experience in your organization the last few years when Satya Nadella took over uh, the role of CEO in, in Microsoft. He made some serious changes in, in the company's approach towards you know, different technologies, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's definitely been a very... Uh, different experience than what you know 
used to be the case on the first days uh, when I joined and, and probably on the decade before that, uh, where uh, Microsoft had a very own stack oriented approach uh, with regards to tooling and, 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 and you know, uh, how uh, things are being uh, built and designed uh, from an architecture perspective uh, into something which is uh, business, uh, customer, user oriented, uh, basically where, uh, the, you know, the needs uh, of, of, of the customers and users is taking precedence above anything else. And so if you look at Azure as the number one operating system on Azure is Linux. Uh, we all use uh, you know, uh, Git as our repository. We, we operate in a, an environment where uh, it's not who built or you know, owns uh, those tools is, is uh, what defines uh, the priority. And so you'd see a lot of uh, open sources. If you'd count you know, contributions to open sources, uh, Microsoft is now the biggest contributor of you know, whatever metric you want to uh, carry. We host a lot of uh, um, projects as open sources from scratch. Uh, and, and we operate in a very, I think, op open and transparent manner. Um, Maybe also a bit humble, uh, like you know, it's it's definitely a company that has gone through uh, several um, life cycles and uh, and events. And so, you know, we when we approach things, we uh, usually take into account that we probably don't know everything, and that you know, there's a great degree of you know us attempting, but and giving it uh, you know our our best, but still fail because competition is hard, and you know whomever is out there is, is just as intelligent and just as passionate. Um, but actually, those cultural values is something that I personally uh, relate a lot uh, to and, and is very reassuring for me as both as an individual and as a leader to know that, you know, it's okay to try and fail uh, and learn from those mistakes. It's okay to take decisions and, you know, reconsider them uh, as things evolve. Um, and, and, you know, that I work for a company that is, is accommodating of all of that. It's amazing to see, uh, once again, the, the, the impact of a strong CEO uh, on the company's culture. It's an amazing transformation for Microsoft. But I won't, I mean, I'll make life a bit harder for you because... It's tempting to see what Nadella is doing is, is great, and uh, we can all see the benefits from it. But there's also the, uh, some benefit to you know, eating your, your own dog food. If a company uh -huh. is, 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 believes in its product so much that it, it operates, it works only with its own tools, that says something of a company, right? I mean, now that you're working with Linux, does, do you feel that does maybe lowers Uh, customers' uh, confidence in the Windows platform, for example? Well, we're not working exclusively with Linux. We, we take a decision based on you know, the needs, uh, the architectural needs and, and the priorities. But there's a, you know, a, a great common saying that says, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think that's true. Like, you know, you, you can only target a team towards a strategic goal uh, to a certain degree if your culture doesn't align 
perfectly with that and you don't invest heavily in ensuring that you know the culture you want to uh, strive to is actually uh, something that you work on on a daily basis and in an honest manner and provides your full attention in order to make sure that you know the uh, the values that you uh, put on a wall or in some PowerPoint deck or whatever is something that is, is really you know uh, we're, we're living our lives uh, uh, per which and then in that sense I think you know there's a lot of uh, um, uh, efforts that are being put uh, into that. So now over to Sivan from, from Wix again. Wix is, is a kind of very interesting and unique organizational structure. If I recall correctly, Wix is, is organized as, as many companies inside the parent companies. You're a manager of one of these companies, uh, the, view, the, the, the viewer company, if I recall correctly. Now, Each company can, I guess, use such and such technologies, but how do you keep the cohesion between the companies so that still the company operates with one cohesive technology? So as you said, Wix has a very uh, special structure. We have the companies, um, as I am managing one of them, and we have the guilds. professional guilds for instance we have the front-end guild or the server guild or the system guild or the product guild or the UX guild and so on and so on um, we have infrastructure teams that are related to the guild that are in charge of the infrastructure for um, the specific stack of develop the developer stack that are working um, in the companies like for front-end we have the uh, UI infra and team it's not even a team it's a few teams that are working on all of the um, testing and different tooling and the technology for the different technologies that we are using and it is possible for companies to work in different technologies as we support different technologies at Wix however we do have the standard technologies that the company has um, decided to use across the entire company Obviously, if it affects the specific company or the specific team, then it's an easier decision to make if we want to adopt a new technology or change the testing systems or the tooling and so on. But if it's something that's going to affect the entire company or even the entire Wix company across companies, then it's a harder decision and the management is involved in this. As we need to change the 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 infrastructure and 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 how we provide tooling for these technologies and 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 for the architectural change and so on so what is the role I'm trying to understand what is the role of the guild in in that sense I mean a guild for for our, some of the listeners who are, might not be familiar it's a kind of a cross organization uh, mini organization which kind of uh, brings under brings all the developers from the same uh, methodology or the same uh, domain like front-end etc so you Can uh, innovation and usage of new technology emerge from a decision within a, within a guild and not within a company, for example? Yes. The guild's responsibilities are way more than just the infrastructure. The guild provides us with um, meetups it provi- that are specifically related to our profession. If, even if my profession is a product person or, or a UX or whatever it is, a, a developer, a front-end developer, server developer, mobile developer there are different guilds and they provide us with the ecosystem according to for our specific pro- profession the the guilds are in charge of hiring and so on so it's not only the infrastructure that's only one part of what the guild is in charge of 
Yeah, that's a very interesting concept, the concept of a guild. I think that's something that lots more companies will probably explore in the coming years. A lot of the podcasts we've done in the past have to do, in some way or another, with growth. Redesigning build systems to account for more developer activity, deleting your testing environment because it's too crowded, organizing data stream management in a company that supports thousands of developers across many countries. Growth is a good problem, like eating too much or having too many friends. You should be so lucky. But it's a problem nonetheless. In fact, it's a major problem that seeps into just about every aspect of a company. It simply makes things more complicated for everyone, whether you're in management, testing, development, whatever it may be. To round out our panel discussion, I asked our participants how they've managed to keep things running smoothly at their companies while everything is racing at high speeds and growing nearly out of control. Right now we are coming up to the third part of our, of our event. And uh, uh, as I mentioned, in, in a few minutes we'll, we'll give our audience uh, the opportunity to ask you the questions. But let's turn to our third and final topic for today, which is maintaining velocity and quality of, uh, of uh, products in a growing company. And I'll turn the f- first question in that topic to you, Yuval, from Facebook. You had the opportunity late- lately to work on a new project, uh, Instagram Lite, if I recall. And uh, working for, for a company as big as Facebook with so many stakeholders in each and every product is probably... Not an easy thing for a manager to do when you want to innovate and start a new project. Uh, what was your, you know, your strategy when you worked on Instagram Lite? How did you bring the, all the stakeholders to support your vision or your team's goals? I think at a company at our scale where you're trying to make significant impact and you know, get to hundreds of millions of users, you, you need to, to understand the different... goals and values and principles that different organizations in the company have. Uh, Facebook tries to be a very bottom-up company, which means that different teams, different organizations will have their own set of values and set of principles, and they will do things very differently. Over the last eight years at the company, where I had opportunity to work on, on multiple such cross-company projects uh, from California and from Tel Aviv, it doesn't matter, and I think one of, one of the best tools that I developed or learned from others was to make sure you understand the principles of all relevant stakeholders and teams and partners. Make sure you understand your own principles and that you are not just being religious about some things, but you're actually being very uh, thoughtful and intentional about what's important for you, why it's important, and also what's not that important, even though you think it's a good idea. It's not that important for you. And I think once you understand what everybody really cares about and where everybody's coming from, uh, you can form plans that will be some kind of a win-win. And they will serve you know, everybody's best interests and everybody will be excited on them. And then you know, that's more of like the, 
shaping the strategy phase of the project. And then when you get to like, okay, heads down, coding, designing, uh, data sciencing, whatever phase of the project, then teams are really empowered at that point. And they can just like blaze through all the challenges because we already defined the strategy, the high level, and the team came up with the goals and the team came up with the roadmap. And we, we factored in all the things that the different stakeholders across the company care about. And now when we start to actually do the work, teams can just like move really fast. Uh, so you might need to tolerate a little bit more time at the strategy shaping phase. And, you know, for, for very complex projects, obviously not for every small feature, but for building a new app from scratch that combines multiple worlds. And I can, then I'm, I think that, sure. yeah. Yeah, you were saying. Yeah, so you just need to tolerate a little bit more uh, patience and investment in the strategy shaping time, and then you can move really fast and empower the team to do whatever they want and to just you know work in a very autonomous way. I can relate to what you're saying about understanding the needs and, and, and principles of other, other people who are stakeholders, but you know, uh, there's always the risk of when you're going with that strategy in mind that the decisions will ultimately become decisions by committee. And there is a saying I once heard that a camel is a cat designed by a committee. Because we all know that committee decisions are not optimal and sometimes they delay or hold back innovation. How do you keep your vision and what you think should be the right way to go in, in such an environment? Uh, do you try to persuade the other stakeholders or you try to compromise? What's your go-to um, way of thought. Yeah. So actually, I think that, you know, my, my go-to solution is it comes like the opposite than decision by committee. It's, you know, if the team really understands all the, you know, the entire universe and not just their own narrow perspective, then the, the roadmap and the strategy that they will come up with will be much more feasible. And that's where I think innovation really happens. So my previous manager, Joy Simchon, who probably some of you know, he used to have this saying, uh, constraints are liberating. So I think when you just have like one big, uh, you know, clean whiteboard, yeah, you can like go wild. But once you introduce some constraints, then I think where technical and product and design and data uh, innovation really happens. And, and then I think where you see teams doing their best work because they understand the world, they are the domain experts for the technology and for the product, and then they come up with creative solutions for, you know, to, to reconcile all the, all the constraints. So actually, I think that this is a way of moving. I mean, whenever you have conflict and the team doesn't understand the entire universe, then is when you need like a VP to decide and you need to escalate things and you need to, you know, and teams come to me and say, hey, you value, I have to talk with that director because we are in disagreement. But when the team actually understand all of these factors on their own, they, they can just like work around all of that and just move uh, autonomously. So actually, I think that this is kind of like the way to, to avoid uh, decision by committee. We now come to the part where we uh, get uh, questions from the audience. Audience already has sent in several questions. Um, first question that, I, that, I'll, uh, that I'll give to you, our panelists, and question is, Uh, did any of you guys have experience with onboarding new employees in that situation working remotely? Yes, you Val, I see that you have. And what did you learn? I mean, what are the kind of tips you can give our audience uh, when they come to 
onboard a new employee? Yuval can start, go ahead. One sentence, just take your time. You know, as us hiring the managers and at least as importantly as the person joining and in the tech industry, a lot of us are definitely, you know, the people that join this company that are here on the Zoom in my grade are, you know, overachievers, people who are used to be like top talent at every company they worked at. Uh, and yeah, you will get to it. But maybe it will take a little bit more time because working from home, your peers don't necessarily have time to support you because their daughters are throwing the teddy bears at them while they try to, to do code review for you. So just take your time, all sides, and, and be uh, respectful to, to the situation because it's crazy. I'd like to add that um, I think that one of the most important things when onboarding people from remote is that they have a lot of attention. So one of the things that we did in order to be able to grow at this time is that we actually nominated three new team leads in my group. We did that in order to make the team smaller and then it's easier to onboard people because they have more attention to the new employees and also to their, to their teams. So when, when you're onboarding someone at, at, at such a difficult time, they need a lot of attention because they don't have a team that they're sitting in the room with that people that they don't even know to take them to lunch and to get familiar with them and to do the full onboarding. So uh, Wix, Wix obviously immediately had a lot of the onboarding move to be online and, and, and presentations and we have the, and, and have all these uh, recorded presentations. And then we had the, uh, the day where all the new employees and all that, we did that online and everything. But I think that what people need, it's similar to what Yuval said, that they take your time. Yes, they need a lot of time, but they also need a lot of attention. They need to uh, meet with their boss and with their teammates often. They need to talk to them. And, and I think that I feel that in smaller team, this works better because people feel more accountable for the process and not when it's like big teams of like 10 or even more than that people then, then um, it, it, it works better in small teams. Uh, I just wanted, I just agree with everything that you said. And I think just one, one more thing. In this situation, we usually put a culture, somebody that is always available for the, new, uh, for the newcomers. This, we call it new, new, uh, new Wazer. And together they can build some of the tasks and some of the new development together in this in, in the squad. And this really helps. Plus, over communicating and doing some virtual coffee and trying to connect him to the team and to the culture, this really helps. Okay, so I uh, think we have time for one more last question from the audience. And uh, interesting question, kind of open-ended question. Did anyone experience the fear of losing control? Uh, I mean, that's something that managers often can feel, uh, especially people who are more you know, control freaks by nature. But in this day and age of, of the pandemic, did you, any, of you, any of you feel that you were kind of losing control over the teams? I can share from my personal experience that um, I didn't feel that I was losing control over the teams, like people are going wild and so on. But my group is managed in a very personal manner, meaning that we sit together, we, we spend a lot of time together, we enjoy spending time together. There are groups of, of people that are really friends outside of work that, that became friends in work. 
And the Zoom meetings are very formal. They're much less than the informal sitting outside having lunch together or just um, talking and having coffee or whatever, where somebody just comes up to me and says, uh, can we just go for, for coffee or with schedule uh, 15 minutes? I want to talk to you about something. And it doesn't have to be related to work. It can be everything. And I think that the remote, the remote work is, is more formal and, peop- and and I feel people less. So I do feel that at some level I did lose control and I am I can't wait for us to get back to the office and just all sit together and work together again the same way we used to, even though the same, I think Guy said this at the beginning of the panel, that it's not going to be the same. Things are, are going to change. Um, and, and I don't know how they're going to be. So I'm excited to see how things are going to be and how we're going to work in this new environment when COVID is, is over. But for now, I, at some level, I do feel that we are losing control. As time goes by, it's getting harder. People are going in and out of isolations and, and quarantines and so on. And it's not easy. That's it for this episode. A big thank you to all our panel members. And thank you for listening. For a full list of our previous episodes, visit wix.engineering podcast. The Wix Engineering Podcast is produced by PI Media, written by Nate Nelson, produced by Guy B. Noon, and narrated and edited by me, Ran Levy. Special thanks to Morad Stern from Wix. See you again next episode. Bye-bye.